Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is today, Sunday, August 16, and I'm welcoming you to episode number six in our season five. Last week, you didn't have an episode because your host had his birthday and I had a bit extended my birthday um, celebrations. No, seriously, I don't celebrate that much, but I just needed that weekend to meet all my people. And so I thank you for your understanding. Today's guest in this show is David Shoemaker, Dr. David Shoemaker, a leading figure of the American OTO who has written those books, which in fact were based on his own podcast, Living Thelema. And he is certainly one of the big specialists in Thelema and a really nice person. And I enjoyed chatting with him. Uh, we hear more about that in a few moments. Thank you all for coming here again today, this week. Um, the episode is called Thelema. Well, just that. Um, and um, I would like to say hello to every one of you who maybe has here come here for the first time ever. Uh, welcome. If you need any more information about this podcast, if you want to retrieve all the former episodes and know a bit of background, and especially if you want to find also the show notes, go on the website, which is www.thoshermes.com, which is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. With info at thoshermes.com, you can also send me uh, your comments, your messages, your criticism, your likes and everything you want. But if you don't want to write email, Go on that website as well and you'll find a possibility to send me a voicemail. You don't even have to type. You just click and send me that voicemail. Or you have a comment field as well there where you can send me directly a message from the website. Facebook and Twitter are, of course, also welcome to leave me messages. Talking about messages... Um, I always like to hear from you regarding music. You who are regulars here, and I welcome all the returners to the show, of course, just as well. All of you know already that I'm asking people who are listeners, who are occultists, practicing occultists, and who are also practicing musicians, composers, interpreters, um, inter interprets, sorry. Um, they, they should also send me their uh, their information because I love to play music from our listeners here in the show. And sometimes it's not just the listeners that I have music from, but also from the people that I interview. And today is such a day. Dr. David Shoemaker is also a musician. And for today's show, we will have three pieces of his music that we will play 
in the show. If you remember two or three weeks ago, I think it was, or maybe even a month already, I have told you that I will return to the good practice of presenting also visual artists here. Because I started, when I initially started this podcast three and a half years back, I presented a few artists on the website and then I stopped doing that because I had the impression I didn't get the, the real feedback from that. People weren't really going on the pages enough. But now there are many, 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 many more listeners to this show. And I guess there might also be more of you who are interested in the arts. And I got a few encouraging uh, comments when I said I, I'm thinking of relaunching the artists page on the website. So I've decided I will do that. I don't know exactly when, sometime in the fall, in October probably. Um, we will be back. I will let you know. But what I am saying now, what is true for musicians is, of course, also true for visual artists. So if you are a practicing occultist and are also an artist, do send me an email. Let me know. Let's talk about that. And maybe I can present your work in one of the artist's pages on the Thoth Hermes website in the near future. You remember the Patreon challenge that I launched? Right, 4% of you listeners, of you weekly average listeners, once we have 4% of them who have also become patrons, I will stop doing publicity about Patreon here. Well, we're not quite there yet. I'm happy to say that the average listening is increasing week by week, so the challenge is rising a bit. We are now 4% would be 100 people. So we have 2,500 listeners each week, even a bit more, but I'm, I'm rounding down to make it easier. So we would need 100 patrons. We are at 42 at the moment. So still some way to go. So please go to the Patreon website, patreon.com and look for the Thought Service podcast or go on the website of Thothermis and click on the Patreon link there. Do become a patron. We need your support. We need your help. And I will be very grateful when you become a patron. And once again, once we're up to 100 patrons, I'll stop talking about it. Great. Let's get into some music now. As I said, it is David Shoemaker himself who sent me three music files of his own music and the first piece that we are going to listen to now is called In Space There Might Be North. David Schumacher, In Space There Might Be North. Enjoy.
In space there might be north. Music played and given to us for this show today by David Shoemaker. And it is, of course, David Shoemaker who is my guest here today on this show. David Shoemaker, he is in he's a clinical psychologist in private practice who is specializing in Jungian and cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. But he's also the chancellor and prolocutor of the Temple of the Silver Star, uh, has been a member of the OTO and student of AA since 1993. So he's really one guy who knows and who has been very active. And he had a very lucky early time because he was uh, his mentor, so to speak. He will tell us more about that. It's not called mentor in the OTO. But his mentor was Soror Meral. And those of you who know who that is, it's Phyllis Seckler, who was a very prominent member in the uh, earlier days of the OTO. So he then became her successor as master of the 418 Lodge in Sacramento, California. He was founding president of the OTO Psychology Guild, etc., etc. So he's really somebody who knows his way around the OTO, he knows his way around Thelema in general, and I'm very happy to talk to him. Um, he has also run for some time and is starting that again, as he said, uh, a podcast by the name of Living Thelema. And he has published uh, some of the texts that he produced for this, uh, for this show, also in a book called Living Thelema. A second volume will appear soon. And as I've now taken the habit to talk to you always a bit, uh, read, uh, read for you always a bit from a book uh, of our guests, I would like to take a short excerpt from that book, Living Thelema by David, and read to you from the chapter about the true will. I'm sure many of you have some basic familiarity with the term true will, but just in case, I want to define it here briefly. First of all, the will in question is the same as the will implied by the word thelema itself, which is the Greek word for will. This is not the simple will of the ego or the whim of the personality. This is not merely wanting something. It's a deeper level of life purpose and the living out of that purpose in an individual lifetime and across multiple incarnations. The true will is the will of the deepest inmost self, the core of who you really are as a spiritual being. Also, and importantly, it's an expression of the universal will as particularized and expressed in your individual life. This is why when we are living in accordance with our true will, we find that much of the time the universe seems to open up a path right in front of us, as if in sympathy with our aims. Likewise, when we feel as though we are swimming upstream against life, it's very often the case that we have veered a bit from the path of our true will. Or, perhaps we are receiving a lesson from the higher guardian angel, 
and or the universe itself that is helping to nudge us back onto the path. The understanding of the true will is dramatically enhanced with the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, but much like the ongoing intimacy of the courtship of Adept with the Angel as the Adept moves across the grades of the First Order of AA, the knowledge of the true will unfolds in a progressive manner as we peel back the layers of our personality to discover what it is at its core. All too often, the true will is erroneously conceptualized as a singular choice of a career or a single task to be accomplished in life. This is far too restrictive. The true will is the essence of yourself. It encompasses you, your actions, your thought, your feelings and your behaviors, and it pertains to the way you live, moment to moment, as well as the entire arc of your life itself, and even beyond one life, into other incarnations. As you can see, it is really much, much more than a choice of career or a single task to complete. There is often, however, a great deal of overlap between the true will and what one chooses to spend one's time doing in life. So this is from the chapter The True Will of David Shoemaker's book Living Thalima, I think a very good concentration of what true will is. And there are many highly interesting, very defining articles in that book. I can highly recommend it. And you will find, of course, everything about the book, the link to it also in the show notes. Right. I think we are now ready to meet David Shoemaker himself. Let's go then. Let me just remind you that after about half an hour into the show, we are going to be back here to listen to some more music by David Shoemaker. But now for the time being, enjoy the interview with David Shoemaker. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me tonight to have on the Thoughts Hermes podcast a guest from the United States of America again, because we have been together with a lot of European guests lately on this show. And I'm happy to be back to America. I'm happy to meet with Dr. David Shoemaker tonight. And I don't think I need to introduce you, David. Uh, I think most of the listeners here are not only also aware of your great podcast, uh, Living Salima, which actually I must say, and before I started, my podcast was also one of those I always listen to to learn a lot about. So thank you for oh, that. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And of course, you're not only known through that, but also through your position, I might say, in the OTO and the North American AA. But we're going to talk about all that a little bit now. And um, it's great to have you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yes, absolutely. It's great to be here. So, David, um, uh, what I always like to know to start those interviews is where my guests have started with their work in the occult and the esoterics. What caused at the beginning their interest? What was it that kicked it off, so to speak? Mm -hmm. um, also, when it was, because it's always very different how people started off. So, may I ask you, where did you start becoming interested and how did you over the years become the David Shoemaker that you are today, at least in the field of the occult and the esoteric? Well, you know, um, I was, I was raised, um, 
a fairly uh, non-committed uh, United Methodist in the United States. Okay. Fairly, um, you know, not not a fire and brimstone kind of religion, but a pretty mainstream Protestant upbringing. Uh, although a lot of the folks in my family. Um, on my mother's side were ministers uh, mm -hmm. several generations so I had definitely had that that uh, church background uh, Christian background but uh, you know was only nominally committed to that but uh, around um, high school you know I was probably 14, 15 or so um, I encountered for the first time the work of Carl Jung and this was a bit of a gateway for me uh, to um exploring depth psychology and, and all its facets and just just getting below the surface of things a bit in terms of symbology and such but i didn't really follow up with that too much until i got into uh, college and decided i was going to pursue psychology as a profession uh, right. therapy as a profession and um re-encountered young by this time was essentially a, a scientifically focused atheist um as many people mm -hmm. seem to become when, when they get education. Um, and uh, I um, went into grad school, uh, graduate school and my doctoral program for clinical psychology and was getting exposed to a lot of the mainstream psychology in schools at that time. Anyway, this was uh, 1990, 91. Uh, the, the focus was very much on cognitive behavioral therapy and, and fairly... Um, Oh, you know, uh, well, certainly not depth psychology. I don't know what else to say. I was, it was not, um, it was not speaking to my soul as much as my brain. Eventually I realized through renewed contact with, with the Jungian, with Jung's work that, um, I was being called to something that had space in it for more mystery. A, a theory, uh, an approach to living an approach to understanding the human mind, and heart and soul, you know, that, that had space for something beyond the quantifiable mainstream psychology I was being mm. exposed to. So, uh, basically crafted, a with, with one of my favorite professors that already had this interest in you and kind of crafted a, an independent study track alongside, uh, the, the main training I was getting so that we could, we did the Jungian book clubs and dream groups and, and things like that. It was very rewarding. Um, then around, not around, but exactly in 1993, um, over the summer, I remember somehow finding my way to the work of Israel Regardi, uh, in particular his, I'm sure that Jung was the the link, but I, once I found his book, The Middle Pillar, and I was reading in there about the interface between uh, psychology, uh, specifically Kabbalistic and Jungian psychology yeah. and magic and Crowley's work, that really blew the doors open for me. Mm -hmm. um, the middle pillar, if I may ask you, especially, sorry if I interrupt you, but sometimes I just hook in a little bit in those things. Um, the middle pillar ritual, um, I like it personally also very much, also actively, so to speak. And mm -hmm. um, you as a specialist, you as a professional also in that field, um, do you think this, would you recommend the middle pillar ritual also to people who start to discover, like you did at the time, uh, to start to discover your own work to into the field uh, is that something that you would recommend or is it rather something that is for more 
uh, advanced students, in your opinion? Well, in 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 my book, Living Thelema, um, there's a chapter on getting started with the basic magical regimen. And what I recommend in there is to have a foundation based on uh, the lesser ritual of pentagram and right. Libra Resh mm-hmm. uh, primarily. And once those are in place, basic meditation and relaxation practices, once those are in place for a few months, um, the middle pillar, I think, is a nice level up from that mm-hmm. uh, kind of turns up the energetic flow a bit in my experience. So yeah, it's something that um, one needn't be an advanced practitioner to do at all, but I do like to see people have a, a basic practice of banishings and, uh, yeah. and yeah. rush. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. So sorry, interrupted you. So let's carry on with that. Well, so got to Regardi's middle pillar book and um, his explanation of uh the overlap between Kabbalistic psychology and Jungian psychology and his discussion of Crowley's role in modern magic um, got me exploring Crowley. So that was definitely the the breaking point in terms of uh, uh, my magical path. So by, by the end of uh, 1993, I was definitely a committed Thelemite and began, uh, that's when I joined DAA and uh, an OTO uh, on the same fall uh, within a month of each other. And, um, you know, never looked back really. I knew that I knew it would be my life's work really once I, once I'd read Middle Pillar and realized that that kind of work was laid out for me. And, um, and once I started my initiatory path. Okay. So it was really your influence as an adult one might say or at least as a as a grown-up uh, and you you weren't one of those people like some say they had experiences at real early age and 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 thought there was something out there or did that also happen to you it does strike me sometimes when i hear people's stories how much younger they were than i was yeah. when they got into it it's it's very common as you're saying you know that people are teenagers when they when they start exploring this stuff and i i guess for me personally i was just i was never drawn to that um explicitly esoteric work or occult work as a teen what i did do uh, and this was really my first exposure to any esoteric system or practice uh was i, I went on a uh, a short version of a guitar craft uh, seminar presented by Robert Fripp in West Virginia when he was doing courses there. And he's working out of um, the Gurdjieff tradition through J.G. Bennett. And right. um, so I got exposure to some basic sitting you know, meditation practices and uh, uh, certainly opened my mind to um, to an esoteric approach to life, but it was all filtered through the music. And uh, uh, so it was a while later before I I actually, you know, as I was saying, got into it explicitly. But it was kind of a, a, a pivotal moment of my teen years in, in terms of opening me up to, to esoteric mm-hmm. pursuits. But I never had the, you know, didn't get into Crowley or magic or anything yeah. that young. Or experiences or things like that. Yeah. Well, not not as such. I, I you know, I did the, the things teenagers usually do uh, in terms of uh, mind expansion, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, didn't uh, it didn't kick off a, 
a practice for me. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Um, you, you were mentioning Jung several times that uh, maybe you, again, as a specialist and a professional in that field, you can say a bit more about Jung at the time. Also, of course, in regards to 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 uh, the more spiritual path of philosophy. You seem to say, if I got you well, um, that this was rather an exception than back then. It would not be, wouldn't have been taught in American um, psychology departments at, at university. Am I right? Uh, it wouldn't have been taught in an, in a, um, an in-depth way. Uh, right. By and that the, time, the schools were very focused for the most part, the mainstream, you know, doctoral programs. Uh, and they were, were focused, focused on, on, on Freud or, or, or cognitive behavioral cognitive uh, behavior, yeah. Yeah. therapy, mm -hmm. um, primarily. And, and, um, to some extent, uh, you know, other approaches like uh, uh, interpersonal therapy, some straight up behavioral analysis stuff. But uh, unless you were going to a school that really specialized in depth psychology in some way, you're unlikely to get a real uh, meaningful exposure to it at that time. And, and I don't know if it's changed now. We don't, transpersonal, we don't even have to speak about it at that time. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you get a you get a book chapter on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in your first year. And that's the last anyone mentions the word. <laughs> OK. And has that changed in the meantime? I mean, professionally speaking, not for you personally only. I mean, in general. And I don't know. I, I would like to think things have broadened a bit in terms of what mm. people get exposed to, but you'd have to talk to um, students who've come through school more, more sure. recently. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then 1993, you seem to remember the moment very clearly because, because you, yes. you were very precise about that moment. Was there a key, a key thing that happened around that time that makes you remember so clearly, or is it just because you know it? I, I remember the room I was standing in and I remember holding the middle pillar book and looking at the passages describing the tree of life and Kabbalistic psychology and, and connecting that with Jung. And at that moment, it struck me, I will, this, this will be my life's work. Great. So you joined OTO and AA, as you said, at the same time, which mm -hmm. is, started I the, believe, it's rather, rather rare that one does it at the same time. Um, that's a good question. I, I think um, probably it's the case that people historically have gotten into OTO or other sort of outer order yeah. groups first um, and uh, rather than, than simultaneously, but I've never been one to... Uh, to stop myself <laughs> from doing what interested me. If you want something, yes. Okay. And where did you live in? What part of the U.S. did you live at the time? I was attending graduate school in uh, Indiana at Indiana State University. I'd, I'd grown up in Arkansas uh, where my father was uh, a philosophy professor at the, the college I went to, the undergraduate school. I went to mm -hmm. Hendricks College. And uh, then got into my doctoral program at Indiana State, which is in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is a yeah. small, very non-progressive uh, town. <laughs> but it helped with focus on studies, let's put it that way. And was it easy to find your way into OTO there in Indiana? Uh, I wouldn't say it was easy, but uh, this is pre-internet, of course, so you had to write to whatever mailing addresses you could find in places. So I did write to the main OTO address, but uh, there were some events being held in Indianapolis by an OTO right. uh, 
Oasis at the time, and and that was my that was my gateway. There was also uh, I encountered um, the AA side of it through similar channels that were mm-hmm. active locally mm-hmm. in Indiana. So we can say you have been for thirty. 47 odd years uh, no 37 sorry now I was I was making it longer no 93 I'm completely wrong 27 what am I talking about sorry. I was feeling old there for a second yeah sorry I just I thought this is not possible 93 my, my daughter is born in 96 she can't be that old yet <laughs> <laughs> sorry about it no, so 27 years but that's yeah. it is still it is quite quite a long time but you have you have gone a a long and in-depth way into both orders, haven't you? Yes. Um, it's been, it, I, I realized I was 20, how old was I at the time? So 93. So I would have been 25 when I got interested in these things and when I joined the, the orders. So um, it, you know, I'd had a few years under my belt as an adult, but essentially it feels like my entire adult life has been yeah. uh, pursuing this. And, and since it, For me, anyway, since the, the choices to pursue this were choices made in my adulthood, I feel that um, it served me well in terms of knowing a bit about who I was before I even started. Mm. Um, sometimes if people are very young, they're, they're really just maturing as a person. And that can sometimes get confusing when they're yeah. also trying to do some of the deeper work um, at a very young age. But uh, in any case... Um, Yeah, I'd, I've devoted my, my life to whatever forms of service I could bring to both OTO and and AA and eventually Temple of the Silver Star, which is the order I'm uh, mm-hmm. administering. Yeah. Um, What was so special for you about OTO, about the Crowley teachings, about Thelema, let's name it like that, I think that's the better way. Um, what was, why was Thelema or is Thelema still so attractive to you? And um, initially, especially at the time, uh, we maybe talk about the present a bit later, but at the time, what, what exactly was it? The doctrine of true will itself seemed to me to be a singularly uh, crucial approach to any self-understanding. This the idea that we must discover our basic nature and attempt with as much specificity as possible to live that out uh, and create a life that is a vessel for living that out. Mm. Um, I was captured by that idea and it also dovetailed with the Jungian work in the sense that uh, Jung was interviewed in the 50s I think it was uh, about you know this is post World War II and things were you know pretty dark at times in, in, in the first half of the century of course and um, he was asked if there was any you know what the greatest hope for humanity was and he said something along the lines of uh that everyone would do their inner work individually. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that this inner work, which could be so collectively healing and evolutionary for the, the human race, uh, happens at the individual level and that the doctrine of true will could be a key to that. Uh, th- those two things together, the, the, the Jungian approach and the true will concept just captured me. Would you be willing 
um, I mean, I, I think many, many of our listeners here, of course, know about the true will and, 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 and that basic, that basic um, approach that Crowley took there. But would you be willing to, to define for us here your, your view on how you would personally define the true will and um, how that discovery of your inner self, so to speak, how that would be approached and work? Mm, sure. Um, the true will is the will of the deepest inmost self mm. that is deeper, truer, and um, more complete than the, the outer ego personality we tend to carry around in our daily lives and think of as ourselves mm. before adapted. Um, the true will, by contrast, is uh, our essential nature as a, a, as a human. And when we can tap into that and understand it and make choices that honor it, we have an opportunity to live more harmoniously in the world because we are not fighting the current uh, of the universe. You know, we're, we're swimming with it. Mm -hmm. It wants us to go where we're trying to go and we want to go where it's carrying us. And so there is a, a, a unity of purpose. Similarly, we're being attentive and attending to our own true will to give other people plenty of space to find and accomplish theirs. So there tends to be uh, less unnecessary conflict between people. Uh, when there is conflict, it tends to be at the egoic level where people are still absorbed in their, their personal wants and needs and so on. And I, that's an important point of definition of true will as well, that it's not simply that the, the classic Crowley maxim of do, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is not a license to uh, just do whatever you want. In fact, it's the opposite of that since adhering to the true will as best we can is uh, often uh, experienced as something that's not as simply giving into a whim. It's so uh, it requires us to, to be tuned in to who we are at a deeper level. It's, uh, it's certainly not do what you want when, when you want it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's one of the most uh, common errors when we speak about Crowley and Salima that people think, especially those who have that typically cliche bad image of Crowley, right. uh, they think, well, it's about egoism and it's exactly as you say, the opposite actually, right? But I like your explanation at, uh, about the unity with the universe and also avoiding conflicts and through it. Um, how, in what way does the lima and the, the idea of the true will also relate to, well, how, how, how we could call it spiritual activism, maybe, or, or, you know, our world is in a state, um, and I'm not only talking about Corona, I'm talking about the resource problem and, and, and right. the problem of, of, well, many, many things, right? We know what you speak about. Um, in what respect is, is that law of the true will or the search for the true will and its expression also related to spiritual activism. When each of us does the best we can to uh, discover our true will and live it out, mm -hmm. then we are by definition bringing the best of ourselves to the world. And I think that is quintessentially what, what we each 
must try to do if we want the world to to be a better place, if we want mm-hmm. to assist in the evolution of humanity and we want to um, influence the social trends in a way that seems to maximize um, personal liberty and health and wholeness of the planet and the people on it, uh, then our best bet, in my view, is for each of us to uh, to accomplish or to, to try to live a, a life in accordance with true will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, it, it's the, the idea of who you are and what you do with your life are not two separate things. They're inherently unified. And when we live that kind of life, uh, as, as many of us as possible living that kind of life, I think that's, that's the hope for, for the health of the, of the species. And in your view, is it something that we can only do as individuals in, in, in our surroundings? Because, of course, uh, that's the first step. Because if you change yourself, then you will change the, your next surroundings and that will help to change further. But is it also, when I say activism, I'm using that word in purpose. I mean, um, also to get organized to lift that unity with the universe let's put it that way is that and, and i'm not talking about audio here i'm just talking about as an individual celebrity might would you would you say this is also part of it or rather not i think that's uh that depends on the nature of the individual for some individuals the discovery of true will may be uh may propel them to do something much more introspective because that is their real nature. They might, might be a creative person who just needs to focus on their creative medium and that's their way of influencing the world. You know, for others, it may be a more explicitly social thing, banding together, um, whether in a, you know, a a cult organization or just generally, uh, to create social change, political change, whatever it may be. As far as I know or have read, I think you're also a musician yourself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you say a few words about that. And my question is, is music, making music, creating music, is that for you also part of your spiritual being, part of your true will? Well, I probably should have mentioned music more when I, when you were asking me how I got into this, because uh, around the time when I was doing that guitar um workshop with with Robert Fripp I was uh music was the way that spirit was speaking to me Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't label it that I wouldn't have wanted to think of it that way probably but um that was the language that spirit was using to speak to me at the time so it has remained something uh the, the creative act especially the um especially improvisation um, is indistinguishable from the same to me from, from the, the the same kind of truth that we think of when we think of spirit. You know, when we mm-hmm. think of what uh, the ultimate meaning of things is, what the ultimate nature of things is. When when a, a creative person is engaged and open to that creative act. Um, I believe they are nothing less than a vessel for spirit, however we wish to think of it. So for me personally, it's been a touchstone always for, um, you know, as one way of touching that uh, in myself. Now that's not to say that I've kept up with music as much as I'd like it. It would, it's hard to do all the things 
that I've done and, and do everything as much as I'd want. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I do keep up with it. I know the feeling and I think it's always a good sign when you when you feel overwhelmed by all the things you want to do and not be yes. bored. What should I do next? Yes, there's a whole bunch of things you really want to do and enjoy doing. And, uh, you know, that's, yeah. as we say, a good problem to have. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about the music. I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, did you, so you played the guitar or any other instruments or? or? A guitar and keyboard. keyboard. And I can okay. sort of, in a very mediocre way, play uh, percussion instruments. Uh, okay, but so it was the, the band type of music that you were were actively producing and, and, and creating? Yeah, or, originally um, I had the same dream of most uh, musicians who are teenage guys, which is, uh, and girls too, I'm sure. But from my own experience to, you know, be in a band and be, a, in a, you know, a mm. rock star or whatever, mm. uh, that, that I quickly left that behind and mostly just focused on um, recording at home and, and uh, in a, in a more uh, experimental way, um, playing all the instruments and layering things. And that's, that's always been what I've done. I did have a band, um, in the first half of the 2000s called Last Three Lives, which we, we did two albums. and uh, mm -hmm. But I've done a movie score uh, and oh. uh, mm -hmm. a number of other uh, mostly instrumental pieces, which are all available on mm -hmm. iTunes and elsewhere. So it's, yeah. it's always been a sideline. Great. I'm, I'm asking for two reasons, and that's why I, I asked a little bit further. And um, one reason is I find it rather common that people who I interview here, so who are really involved into into occultism, Selima, and and other types of occultism and esotericism, are active musicians, and I find that striking. Right? Mm -hmm. Probably for the reasons you just you just gave. And and personally, I also. I also only, so to speak, started around my 20s to become actively interested and involved in the field. But I started music at very early age and I have the feeling only at the late stage I became the feeling that that was at a very early stage my way of getting more into a, let's call it a flow or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Right. And I, I don't know if you have made that experience as well, but it's it's rather similar to other states that you learn later on through Middle Pillar and others. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, a good way of putting it. The, the um, experience of music and of being open to it and a channel for it, you know, is, um, was definitely part of my training and even understanding that that was possible, you know, how, how to be, uh, a, a channel for something to come through instead of simply feeling like you have to make something instead of building a building, you know, you're, you're, mm -hmm. a, a, a vessel for something to flow through. Channel is a good name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has music in your later practice uh, with AA or the OTO ever played an active role earlier or later, but has it ever been an issue there or is that somehow your personal island and uh, doesn't touch the, so to speak, official, or, I don't like the word, but the, yeah, yeah, you, I get you probably understand what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in a few ways, I, um, I, and one of the earliest things I did musically after getting into Thelema was to do a, a score for the Gnostic Mass designed to be yeah. a recorded piece to play behind the mass. Uh, I, to me, it's essentially unlistenable uh, what I did back then. Um, I was in my earliest uh, um, 
musical experimentation days mm-hmm. in terms of recording. But um, but over the years, I have often been a at, at a mass. If I wasn't performing as one of the officers, I might provide a musical accompaniment to it on the keyboard or guitar. I've done that a few times, and I would compose the musical um, intros to Living the Lima podcast. So. I, that's right. Oh yeah, exactly. I remember that. I remember that when 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 I was still a regular. I'm afraid I am not at the moment. I don't have the time because I'm using so much time to producing my own podcast. But but I remember that as you're saying it. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to David Shoemaker. He is such a nice guy, and it's such a calming experience to talk to him, but with very deep content and highly interesting. Thank you for that, David. We will return to the talk in a few moments. Um, But now let's listen to some more music. And it's, of course, again, music by David Shoemaker and his band. So this second song that we are going to listen to is called Memory. David Shoemaker and Memory. Thank you. 
Memory. Music by and from David Shoemaker, who is our guest today on this show. And I'm very happy to talk to him about the Lima, the OTO AA and his personal experiences. Okay, and while we were doing that interview afterwards, David realized that he had forgotten to tell me something and I'm happy to do that for him now because it's an important information. We wanted also to talk about Thelema Con. Thelema Con, as it says, a Thelema conference, which has taken place, of course, in person also from time to time. But this symposium on Thelemic magic and mysticism this year, given the situation in this world, is being is taking place via web conference and uh, it takes place it will take place from october 17 to october 18 and there is an awful lot of really interesting stuff and very very interesting speakers david schumacher himself of course but lon milo duquette richard kaczynski both of them were of course already guests on this show there's also Andrew Farrell, Harper Feast, and Lauren Gardner, and probably others who have not yet um, completely arranged uh, the information with, with uh, the Thelema Con. Uh, in any case, this symposium is really something you should not miss. And you can find all the information on thelemacon.org. I will certainly also put the information up on the Thoth Hermes website so that you can find it easily. Right, not to miss. And I am happy I could catch that up after the interview. So let's return. Let's return to David Shoemaker and to the second part of this interview. Um, as always, after the second part of the interview, right away, uh, there will be a third piece of music. And again, David Shoemaker's piece of music. And the third piece that we will hear will be called Twilight. But for now, let's go and meet again with David Shoemaker. Well, let's go into another field. I would like to come back to OTO and AA a little bit earlier and go much more in depth there. Sure. But before we go there, as we have been speaking about beginnings and early stages of your of your work, um, maybe it's a moment to talk about the, one of the reasons why we're here today, which is the new book that you have been um, editing with, together with Lon, Lon Milo Duquette, who mm -hmm. was also already uh, a guest on this show That's right. um, a, few, a few months ago. Um, you you have uh, uh, edited a new book called Complete Book of Ceremonial Magic, which is quite a quite a volume and um, where a rather nice uh, line of names have gathered together with you and Lon to to write about different aspects of right. ceremonial magic. And I feel it is maybe maybe that's not the intention, but I feel it's a very good starter book for people who are really interested. And so that's why I would like to talk about it now at this moment where we yeah. talked about your beginnings. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that intention for that book and how you see it and for what audience, so to speak, that book was aimed to course uh so th this project started a few years ago um when uh you know lon had been in discussions with llewellyn publications which is the publisher of this book mm -hmm. uh to uh to do something of this magnitude and uh he asked me if uh 
if I wanted to, to co-edit and uh, said, yes, of course, that sounds great. Uh, but uh, it was a couple years after that before we really started on it in earnest because um, Tarawishki uh, died. And so right. projects, various projects at Llewellyn were, were uh, delayed a bit. But we came back to it, um, I think it was in 2018 or so, maybe late 2017, and started in earnest um, getting in touch with the various contributors. Um, the idea was to make this a survey and source book for uh, a variety of Western magical traditions and to have each chapter not just uh, written by us as uh, you know a surface level discussion of the tradition but to have an expert in that tradition write that mm -hmm. chapter um, so that was really the treat of, of this for me personally as an editor was seeing so many uh, amazing writers and thinkers and practitioners bring, you know, come to the table with what they're already excited about and, and an expert in. Uh, and uh, pulling that together was, of course, a, a major editorial challenge, but um, um, I'm gazing over at the table of contents here, reminding myself of all the yeah, things we went through. Yeah, I was looking at it myself here, um, too, yeah. But uh, very rewarding just to, to see how it turned out. And I, I think it is a good, certainly a good place to start for an absolute beginner, but also for an intermediate or advanced magician who hasn't explored some other facet of mm -hmm. the tradition and wants to get exposed to it. For example, there may be a lot of... Um, Thelemites who haven't delved in depth into the Golden Dawn tradition, or there might be a lot of Golden Dawn magicians who have not touched on Thelema too much, or uh, people who don't know much about alchemy but do a lot of other kind of ceremonial magic. So uh, right. the cross-pollination and the ability to access whatever corners of the field you might not be familiar with, I think is valuable even for a more advanced magician. It, it's a fascinating and heavy book, but really worth it. <laughs> I, I might use the opportunity, if you don't mind, uh, David, to, to, to just give the names uh, next to you and Lon, because it, it's fascinating and I'll read all of them, otherwise somebody else will be, will be uh, <laughs> mad at me. Sam Webster, Randall Bowyer, David Rankin, William Hawk, Dr. Stephen Skinner, Marcus Katz, Arne Leach, Citrix Citro and Sandra Tabasso Citro, John Michael Greer, David Allen Hulse, Brandy Williams. Sounds like uh, a mixture of the old guest list and my wish list for the podcast here. <laughs> I would I would only correct you on one thing because the way it's listed, I think you missed it. But the uh, Kabbalah chapter with Randall Bowyer was co-authored by Anita Kraft. So ah, sorry, sorry, make sorry, sure sorry, that she gets credit. Sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, Anita. Uh, thank you for correcting me. Absolutely. No, and and sometimes also. Absolutely, you're right here. She is, and sometimes uh, I also the pronunciation. I re realized it when you said Llewellyn, and we here in Europe we say Llewellyn. So uh, that's oh. very interesting that we <laughs> have a difference of approach, but we mean the same. And um, so, um, but that was, of course, by far not your only book. Uh, I remember *Living Thelema*, which is also in my in my desk here. Um, and uh, any other plans or other other books you would like to talk about that you have published so far? Sure. Um, in 2016, I released a, a record of my scrying of the 30 Enochian Aethers called *The Winds of Wisdom*, mm -hmm. and uh, so it has the the full results of all the scrying sessions, but also uh, a working methodology 
presented mm-hmm. at the end of the book to a fairly concise approach to uh, to let people start experimenting if they want to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the book has everything you need in that regard, except for the images of the, of the tablets themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, alongside all of this, over the last uh, twelve years or so, I've uh, been involved with Temple of the Silver Star doing archival publications. So we published two volumes of. Um, Phyllis Seckler's writings, Sora Merrill, mm-hmm. uh, collected from across her life and, and correspondence and, and other things like that. Uh, we published a book of uh, Jane Wolfe's diaries from her time at Jeffaloo and the right. Abbey of Thelema there. Mm-hmm. We published uh, selected letters from uh, across Carl Germer's life as another prominent Thelemite and mm-hmm. follower of Crowley. Um, and some of Phil Seckler's poetry. Uh, and uh, in terms of my, my personal writing, uh, you can expect another volume of Living Thelema to come out uh, Good. probably within the next year or so. There were a lot of podcast episodes that didn't make it into the first book that didn't have time to turn into chapters. And I'm continuing to do other episodes. So yeah, there'll be a volume badly. two. <laughs> badly. Um, you just mentioned Jane Wolfe, of course, Jeffalo. She was a personal student of Alistair Crowley and then Phyllis Seckler, who was herself a student of Jane Wolfe, if I, if I remember well. And for those who are not so much into Slima, Phyllis Seckler, of course, she was also known as Soror Merrill. Is that uh, correct. correct there? And Merrill. was one of the great figures in, in the OTO yes. uh, in her time. She died, uh, I think, about 15 years ago or something. It was like 2004. That. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that all tells us that you have, since 93, gone a, a very deep and long path uh, into the OTO and AA. So now you should tell us more about that because so once you had gotten into it, uh, what happened next? Because I mean, you don't become what you are today and you will tell us your exact title or, or function sure. in the OTO today. And um, what happened that you get there? Well, I, I guess I should could probably start with one order at a time, but I, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's Take more the order you want. <laughs> linear that way. Um, in OTO is fairly straightforward. I, I, um, you know, progressed through the, the, the various degrees of the man of earth triad, as they call it, the preliminary degrees. And, uh, in 1997 moved out to California and, uh, uh, since I was already working with Sora Merrill um, as, as my AA teacher, I um, got involved with her work at 418 Lodge of OTO, which was the local body there. She had Sacramento been the founding... Body, right? Pardon? Sacramento, that it was. Eventually, yeah. She, she yeah. lived in Oroville, California, which is about yeah. an hour and a half north of Sacramento. And so mm-hmm. at the time, 418 Lodge was nominally uh, based in Oroville, but once we started having activity in, in Sacramento, um, the, the de facto location uh, became Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was uh, assisting her, and then when she died, I took over as master of 418 Lodge. This was a group that had been founded by Phyllis in 1979, and so it already had many years going by that time, and at this point still still exists, and is um, essentially one of the oldest continuously operating Thelemic organizations of any kind yeah. um, mm-hmm. going on. So I, I have been heavily involved in 418 Lodge at one capacity or another uh, right up until 
this past spring when I moved across the country and uh, had to, to to finally let that go. But um, in the process in OTO, I um, rose to my current level of service, which is uh, Sovereign Grand Inspector General and Bishop of Ecclesiastica Catholica. I was the founding president of the Psychology Guild of OTO and, and uh, was fairly central in getting the pastoral counseling workshops going that have been toured around the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and um, often, you know, speaking at the national convention and, and traveling to local bodies to do talks. And it's been a, a really lovely journey in terms of getting to know OTO members around the world. I'm sure. So when you say around the world, you really not only bound to North America or, or the U.S., but, but right. also beyond that, right? Right. My membership is in the U.S. Grand Lodge, but uh, mm. um, I've had speaking engagements uh, abroad as well as in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. I only found out, not now, but I only found out uh, about the psychology guilt because of you. That was at the time, I believe, when uh, when when you talked about it in, in Living Serena at some point. And can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I find that a, a very interesting and fascinating approach to do a psychology guilt within uh, Salimic, be it occult order. So what, what inspired you to that? And especially what does it do? What is the aim of it? The guild... The guilds within OTO are designed to be uh, a sort of a mutual support society for members of each profession um, in, in keeping with the nature of the profession, whatever it may be. So um, when I conceived of the Psychology Guild, and, and this was probably... 94, 95, when I first started thinking of the idea, it didn't start formally until 2000. Um, the idea was let's gather um, members of various social science professions that are closely related to psychology. So psychology, psychiatry, social work, mm -hmm. things like that. And, um, you know, when we, we got together and started contemplating what we could do, uh, the, the things that the first thing that seemed obvious would be to, a journal of some kind that would collect um, mostly academically toned writings uh, about psychology and, and Thelema. Uh, but then um, I was asked by the U.S. Grand Lodge to develop a pastoral counseling workshop to pre present to um, clergy within the EGC, the Ecclesiastica Catholica and OTO. Um, and Uh, and aspiring clergy. So we started doing, for a span of years there, it was sometimes as many as four workshops a year in various parts of the U.S. and we'd travel around and and uh, do a full weekend workshop um, trying to deepen the, um, the capacity of clergy and aspiring clergy to understand their role within a Thelemic community and the importance of... Uh, you know, all, all the considerations that can go into how to be a support, how to bring the best of yourself to a community like that as clergy. Um, right. Uh, I could imagine, but I have no idea, but I could imagine that the psychology profession, the large, the large definition, like you just uh, gave it, is uh, rather well represented in Selima, or is, is that just an imagination I might have? The, the list of membership in the Psychology Guild was always 
quite large. Uh, you know, not everyone's yeah, yeah. very active necessarily all the time, but uh, uh, it seems like in terms of the potential guilds that could be organized, uh, there was a lot to draw from there. It just seems that there there is a, a large overlap in interest uh, and life experience between psychology and magic. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. But on the other hand, as a professional, you're a clinical psychologist right. Uh, professionally, right? Um, is it difficult as an active clinical psychologist uh, to be a prominent member uh, of OTO and AA? Are people um, not coming to 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 work with you as, as or to work, I mean to 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 go to your to your practice because you are a member of the OTO does that happen or or is that completely an open an open frontier so to speak um, uh, my practice has been full for 23 years so I have no complaints about people showing up but I am sure that sometimes especially post internet um, that people Google my name and uh, when the, the first three pages that pop up are all about my involvement in Thelema, maybe they don't, they don't call me for, to even get started. Uh, so if someone's going to be really, uh, turned off by that, I probably never even hear from them to start with. Right. Um, probably. Yeah. But I've never had anybody, um, say that they were, you know, stopping working with me because of that or, or whatever. Okay, and, so and uh, of course I've been practicing in a fairly oh. progressive yeah. place in California too. So you had no, no, no negative experience with that. Mm -hmm. Occasional crazy sounding phone call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we go to the AA, I have a, I have a personal question because, um, I myself, I find the, I'm not a thelemite. I've never been part of it, but I'm, I've been for 40 years active in different fields in the occult, mostly inspired by my 27 years of Freemasonry and then going further and, and magic and ceremonial magic, etc. But, and the true will and a lot of things in Selima have always attracted me mm -hmm. very much. The, the problem I personally often have, but that's because probably I haven't really looked for the right answer is You just mentioned clergy and Ecclesia Agnostica Catholica and the terminology that Crowley gave to certain things is very um, church-like, mm -hmm. right? And to me, um, what I, maybe grown up in a Catholic country like Austria, um, what I see as an internal image of a church is exactly the opposite to the true will as I see mm, it, and right. also as you defined it just ago. Can you, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who, who has a problem with that, with that question. Could you help people like me in giving an explanation of why he chose to do that and why I'm wrong? <laughs> um, I think the basic response is that we have to broaden our conception of what a church can be uh, beyond what it has functioned as for a couple thousand years now, which is generally an oppressor uh, focused on orthodoxy and control strategies. And you know? mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if a church could be a place that would foster the personal liberty of each individual and even for people who weren't esoterically inclined to let them benefit from a community of people who are esoterically inclined to doing the, the, the magic, you know, not in an exclusionary way, but in uh, as an offering to the community. Mm -hmm. So the Gnostic Mass, for example, as a as an exoteric ritual that 
anybody in the world can just come and attend as a, as a member of the public um, is an expression of that. But I think the main thing is not letting our preconceptions of, or past experiences of what a church has been uh, limit what a church can be. And mm-hmm. I also am not particularly insistent, I'm, well, I'm not at all insistent on anyone having a religious approach to Thelema. If someone wanted to take an entirely secular, um, you know, psychological approach to it or whatever, that's their right to do so. And one of my favorite things about Thelema is that there's not that expectation of, of belief um, required. You know, what's, what's expected is a commitment to the doctrine of true will in terms of defining oneself as a Thelemite. Is hermeticism to you an important part of Salima, or is that a parallel, a parallel school, so to speak, uh, uh, within the occult work? I think uh, hermeticism. You could you could you could say that there are any number of fields that are. Um, historically uh, are a language that the lemma is built on you know you mm-hmm. you couldn't exclude mathematics or philosophy or psychology uh, or chemistry or you know there's any number of things that that would that the lemma would be lesser if it weren't for the contribution of those yeah. fields like human knowledge itself you know so uh hermeticism is one body of symbolic, uh, uh, you know, symbolic approach and, and sort of a, um, a body of, um, philosophical leanings that influenced Crowley and influenced the Lima. I think it's incredibly important in particular, um, in my work in the temple of the silver star, which is, uh, essentially a, uh, golden dawn descendant that has been patterned after, Uh, the cipher manuscripts of Golden Dawn, but with the influence of Thelema. Oh, really? Um, mm-hmm. We are very much steeped in the Hermetic and Rosicrucian traditions, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, yet with everything uh, clearly, clearly brought into a Thelemic world, with overturning the sort of old Aeon uh, uh, Judeo-Christian leanings of some of the symbols and such. Right, right. Interesting. So now let's go into the AA. You mm-hmm. mentioned before that Soror Merle was your mentor, I think it's called in the AA, right? Technical term is superior, but yes, superior, it yeah. fits. I mean, uh, were you just lucky or did you just show a special approach to it that they, that she, that Phyllis became your superior? I mean, that's quite, quite just, must have been quite a positive <laughs> shock when you learned that, isn't it? I uh, still don't fully understand how the hell happened, but, um, I, I was involved in, uh, her work starting in 1993, um, via another group and came out to visit her because she lived close to Sacramento. And my, my wife at the time had come from Sacramento. So we were visiting my wife's family. I went up for a visit with Phyllis. Um, and, uh, found myself sitting about a, a 
nine months into my time as a Thelemite sitting on her back porch, drinking wine with her and having her look over my astrological chart and talk to me about all these historical figures that to her were just people she knew. <laughs> and uh, uh, by that time, of course, you know, she'd been involved since 1939. So we're talking about somebody who's essentially the senior most Thelemite on the planet. Of course. And, um, it was mind blowing. I, I, I don't know why, but she, she took a liking to me and, uh, really quickly developed into a relationship where, where I was clearly her successor, but also, um, we were very good friends and I, you know, I, I, I feel lucky just to have lived on earth at the same time she did much less to be a student. of Yeah, her. I'm sure. So how did your path in the AA go? We said before you were talking, talking one after the other. So OTO we kind of mm -hmm. talked about. So now not up to you to talk about the AA after after that encounter sure. with, with Phyllis. Yeah, so I deepened deepened my AA relationship with, with Phyllis over the course of um, what ended up being the last 10 years of her life. Mm. And uh, would, uh, you know, we started working together on a monthly basis uh, magically and um, um, forming a, a group there um, based in, in Oroville that would meet monthly and she, I would often load up my car with friends from Sacramento we would go up and she would do a class mm -hmm. and of course this was like you know you go to the mountaintop and hear the, the wise woman talk yeah. and everyone was very excited to to do it and um, I I think I can speak for all of us that we, it was just a real honor to to be able to, to sit with her on those occasions and um Uh, you know, my A work progressed according to the, the way the system is structured, you know, mm -hmm. moving through the grade tasks and, sure. and under direct supervision and uh, getting tested on everything as you're supposed to be. And um, she uh, died in the spring of 2004. My father also was dying at the time uh, and, and later that year uh, died. And so um, by the end of 2004, uh, I had gotten to that place in the A structure where it's time to do the, the, the big working and uh, mm -hmm. um, at the, at the five, six level and do a retirement and uh, uh, pursue that state of attainment called in our tradition, the knowledge and conversation of the Holy guardian angel. And so mm -hmm. that was, um, a obviously a huge pivotal event in my life and my work since then has been an enactment of the uh, essentially instructions I received uh, at that point including the foundation of the Temple of the Silver Star and continuing to to work in NAA as, as I seem to be called to do right What would, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you if you, I, if you, I was just going to add that, um, beyond those sort of, that sort of skeletal outline, the work is so, uh, that, you know, the, the tasks are published, but the work is so personal. It's sometimes hard to know what to say about it because it's become intrinsically bound up in my entire life. Uh, there's, there's no way I can talk about what I've done and who I am without that, um, uh, reflecting my path in AA. So I'm just going to add that. <laughs> We are probably working in different schools, but you seem to have read my mind now because my question that I, I want to interrupt you with was just, can you say, probably you can't, what you would be without Lima nowadays? Uh, 
I think I would, I would obviously still be in the psychological profession. I'd still be a therapist, but I think my level of, uh, uh, my ability to, to focus myself on the things that are most important for me and, and to not waste energy and waste time doing things that are not intrinsic to my nature. Um, in other words, intrinsic to true will, I think that it, it, uh, I, I think I, it feels like my life would be recognizable, but about 90 degrees, uh, to the left, you know, I would be yeah. a little more off track, uh, and, and I wouldn't want that. Um, and of course it, it's been incredibly rewarding to live a life working with so many great people as, as teachers and colleagues and students and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. And you mean that focus would be both professionally and in other parts of your life, that focus that you found within Silima, of course. Yeah, I think, I think the, all the personal choices that grew out of understanding of true will, you know, would have been much different and uh, mm -hmm. probably much less satisfying and effective if I had not been on this yeah. path. A general question many people mm -hmm. encounter who are interested in in the world of the occult is um, solitary work versus um, order or group work, mm -hmm. right? And Salima, of course, is clearly uh, an order and a group that works together. Um, But uh, it's not always easy, especially, I don't know how the case is at the moment in North America, if it's easy everywhere to find an OTO group or an AA group if you want. But um, in Europe here, I think it's rather difficult at the moment. Um, so is there, is there an alternative that you suggest for a young Uh, wannabe telemite. I mean that positively. I don't mean that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> One don't want to sound, make that aspiring sound. telemite. <laughs> yes, aspiring. Exactly. Exactly. You see, that's where where my English is not my mother tongue. <laughs> my an aspiring telemite, um, but who doesn't find the opportunity geographically speaking to 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 work in a group? Is there an alternative? Um, I think if you pick up um, living Thelema to come back to that what I was saying earlier about that chapter called getting started with the basic regiment. Um, you know, there's a lot of materials like that, um, sort of self-instruction, self-initiatory materials in, in Thelema and other traditions, um, that, that are out there. I think what you lose potentially, and let me throw in a caveat here that we can learn from anyone and everyone we encounter in life. We don't have to join a, A school. We don't have to have a formal magical teacher. We can learn all the time. So by saying what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to um, undermine that truth in any way. But what you lose when you aren't in a living tradition is the living memory, sometimes decades and decades old, of uh, a tradition that is truly understood and lived and passed on so that you're not having to reinvent the wheel uh, yeah. at every step. Uh, and that's the, the same rationale for having a teacher who has themselves been trained. Um, I did a podcast episode called Finding a Teacher, Finding a School, which essentially gets at these points. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a utility. So I think there's a lot that can be done in a solitary way, and uh, that's valid and important. But it, I, I do encourage people to at least consider seeking out a, uh, 
a formal organization um, for the foundations. And it, uh, I can speak to this in the context of what we're actually doing around the world right now and in the groups I'm administering, if, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Temple of the Silver Star, which again is a, a, a golden dawn patterned order that is that has been sort of reconfigured to be Thelemic. Um, this is a living order that has passed through various incarnations in an unbroken way going all the way back to the golden dawn. So this is mm. a situation where there is, there has been an unceasing, uh, community of initiates meeting essentially on a monthly basis for 120 years, um, passed down to us now. And so that institutional memory and the, the richness of tradition is something that wasn't from a book and wasn't from uh, somebody who just decided they're going to start a group, you know, uh, but was uh, living and, and is living. So we are active in the U.S., across the U.S., and uh, we have a working uh, initiatory group in the U.K., um, certainly accessible to anyone in, in Europe, um, if they can come maybe once a year. So yeah. our initiatory traditions are, are open at uh, what we call an at-large level of membership, where people can be anywhere in the world as long as they can get to one of our working groups once a year or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in AA, we have initiates ready to accept students around the world as well. So to sort of non-answer your question, the, uh, there's a lot you can do in a solitary way, but we offer a lot also in terms of right. accessibility to people who are at some distance, including some distance webcam instruction for the temple. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think of course the internet and the available literature that was not available 50 years ago, um, at least not to that extent, um, is, is of course helpful to right. at least find your way before you make that step that you just mentioned. Right? Yeah. There's so and much more out there now. Absolutely. One one of the things that's out there is, of course, your podcast. You mentioned it several times, so we should uh, briefly also talk about that because, once again, I really, I really learned a lot from your podcast, not just as a podcaster, but from content, and, right? And uh, living Selima is is a is a fixed fixed point in the world of uh, occult podcasting. I would say, what inspired you to start it, and, and where do you want? it to go? Um, this was around 2010. And at the time, um, the speech in the silence podcast was getting started, which is another one that's mm-hmm. uh, been around for a bit. And, um, I got involved with those guys right at the, at the outset and conceived of living Thelema initially as a segment that would appear on that podcast. And so I would do 20 or 30 minutes a, a month and, and, uh, get that to them. Um, and the way it kind of developed is that I, I had all these mini lectures um, that were already kind of in a 20 or 30 minute zone that I might be delivering for a local group um, discussion I would have with local students or so on. So all of these components that I had a lot to say and had been saying already for years, but thought, well, I can just turn this into a, an episode. And, and then uh, that just kind of went on and on. And I, I um, kept thinking of new things I wanted to talk about. And I got great suggestions from people about new episodes. And so that's, that's been, it was most, most uh, frequently appearing between 2010 and 2015, 16 or so. Mm-hmm. And then I had uh, 
other projects I had to focus on and cultivate there for a few years, but I've just uh, resumed doing uh, much more frequent episodes. Yeah. Um, so I, where I see that going is, is continuing to, uh, to challenge myself with uh, talking publicly about some things that interest me and, and trying to find what people want to hear about. And I always encourage those suggestions. Yeah, and then I will also, of course, put uh, into the show notes of this show a link to Living Salim. I think it's it's really it's really nice and worth it. And well, I have a final question for you. It's a little bit uh, uh, um, a link to the book on ceremonial magic, but <laughs> it's it's cheeky. No, the last the epilogue of that book has a has a fun name, and I'm going to alter the name of that of that a little bit. It says the future in the book. It says the future of ceremonial magic, and mm -hmm. my question is about the future of Salima to you, of course. And there's this wherein the narrator, that's you in the case, sets out to explore the future, confronts despair, and emerges with hope. I like the title of that chapter, but so. What is there about the future of Salima that might confront us with despair sometimes, but will always emerge with hope? Mm. I think there's a lot to the Thelemic movement that is not as essential as people think. Mm. Uh, some of the trappings of ritual magic, um, even organizational the existence of organizations supporting it. Um, I think what is the, the point of hope for me is that the individual path is never going to go away. The, the, the intent and passion of each individual to discover and live out the true will, even if in future generations no one's heard the term Thelema. Uh, I think if we get people doing this work, Thelema is alive and vibrant and and is actually the way the world works, regardless of whether anyone's heard of Crowley or uses the term Thelema. So bizarrely, I'm saying the hope for Thelema is that uh, Thelema doesn't have to be called that or known as that to be itself and to work for people. Well, that's like magic without the wand and the rope, right? Right. That's right, right. Well, David, thank you so much. It was really great to have you here tonight with us and um, really enjoyed that. And you opened a lot of knowledge again, as you always do, to, to those people who were listening. Thanks for that. And um, I hope you didn't have too bad a time either. And hope to, <laughs> hope to, hope to all your projects are going to flourish and, and come to what you wish them to be. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And if I may uh, just uh, shout out to the, the websites where people can find me if they want to find sure, me or um, the organization. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, for um, AA, the site is onestarinsight.org. And for the Temple of the Silver Star, it is uh, the initials TOTSS.org. And, and for those who didn't have a pen now, we will have them in the show notes, of course. As great. Well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great Bye to now. be here. Bye-bye.
Twilight. That was the third piece by David Shoemaker, who also offered us not only a really, really interesting interview for this episode, but also three pieces of music performed and created by him. Thank you so much, David, for being with us here today. It was lovely to have you, and I'm sure all the audience enjoyed, and we are looking forward to hear more uh, from you, from Salima, also in the future on this show. Right, um, well, this was this week's episode number six and episode number six of season five. Uh, thank you for being with us here today. It was lovely to have you and I hope to have you back again next week. And, well, you're going to ask me now already, of course, what's up next week and rightly so. Next week we have another really, really lovely interview with a young lady. I think she must be the youngest invited person on this show ever so far. Uh, it's Georgia van Raalte. Uh, those of you who are looking around on the internet a lot, who are interested in new people, new voices, new faces of the occult world, they have certainly already come across Georgia. She's a highly interesting practicing occultist, but also a candidate for PhD in the field uh, of research around Dion Fortune, though in the occult field, something quite um, new in this academic world. We've had Henrik Bogdan uh, in our last show in episode five, and he is an academic, of course, but uh, he is already a professor in that field. And this time we have somebody who will soon be a uh, a PhD in the field and she, Georgia, has had a lovely talk with me. I really enjoyed talking to her and you should all be looking forward to much to this next week's interview. No break this week, I promise it'll be next Sunday, August 26th. Once again, thank you for being with me here today. It was lovely to have you as an audience. It's always a pleasure to produce that podcast for you and to have you with me. And for now, I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.